Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we're joined by Natalie Landau-Gibson, a Southern California native who has spent the last 10 years honing her skills in the field of conflict resolution. She received her bachelor's degree in sociocultural anthropology from Boston University, and then her master's degree in ethics, peace, and global affairs from the School of International Service at American University in Washington, D.C. With particular interests in human rights, social justice, conflict transformation, and peace building, Natalie has worked for a variety of nonprofits, government organizations, and public institutions striving toward creating positive change domestically and internationally. Natalie's current role is an ombudsperson at the University of California, Los Angeles, where she provides confidential conflict resolution services to students, faculty, and staff. When not working, Natalie enjoys reading, spending time with her friends over a good board game, and traveling the world with her husband. Good morning, Natalie, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Thanks, Mary. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad you're with us today. Well, so we met at the International Ombuds Association Conference. How was that experience for you at the conference? It was great. I I have to say it was the first in-person Iowa conference that I've been to. Um, I think I became a member in 2018 or 19 and unfortunately missed that year's in-person conference. And then, of course, there weren't in-person conferences until this year. So it was exciting and a little overwhelming (laughs) to just be in, you know, these huge rooms with so many people in the field, but it was so great to get to see people that I'd only ever met virtually and meet new people and, you know, be able to, to learn from one another and just kind of engage with people who do the work that I do and, and, you know, adjacent kinds of work. So it was, it was so great. It was a wonderful conference. One of the best in-person conferences or the best I've ever been at just with that atmosphere. And mm-hmm. um, when you're around a lot of ombuds, they're such good listeners <laughs> and <laughs> interesting. And as you said, mm-hmm. very so many different ways in which to be at an ombuds or ombuds adjacent. Right. But let's begin with talking about you and your work history. What's the first job you ever had? You know, I was thinking about that and it definitely has to be babysitting. (laughs) Um, I think is, you know, I I was doing that before I could even drive a car. (laughs) So I, I think that kind of played up some of my conflict resolution skills too, of just being able to manage like multiple toddlers at a time. I think the first family that I worked with had twins and, and then a younger child. And I was constantly just trying to like keep them from, you know, (laughs) <laughs> just tearing tearing the house apart, you know, pushing each other down the stairs, that kind of thing. So that was the first thing that I was paid to do. And then I think my first sort of real person job, if we can call it that, was as a market researcher at a call center. I think it was probably maybe my first summer before college or, or after my first year of college, just to kind of find something to to keep myself interested and, and, you know, have some pocket change. And that was interesting. I have a whole different level of appreciation for, you know, telemarketers and like understanding that they're not necessarily doing this because they love calling people at dinner time, but you know, it is a job and it's research that can be really helpful. And um, it was just kind of an insight to a different kind of job than I ever would have thought about. Where did you move on from there? So you went into college and what did you major in in college? 
I majored in sociocultural anthropology and uh, minored in archaeology with kind of the lofty goal of being sort of the next, you know, kind of like female Indiana Jones situation, and then ended up focusing more on the anthropology side and getting really interested there in sort of social justice as it sort of relates to culture. And I learned a lot about different types of conflict resolution practices in that sort of side of of school. So it was a little all over the place, but I loved it. That is so interesting. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that anthropologists, um, that that you would find your way into conflict resolution. So were you looking at it from different time periods, different cultures? And, And what did you find? What did you find that was most interesting to you about that study? Yeah, I think the first thing, and I think it was my probably my first semester in college, I took uh, a course on legal anthropology and, you know, different legal systems throughout the world. I remember studying a system of, of law in Bali and just how different it was. And, it, you know, it's more of a community approach. And then later learning about restorative justice practices and indigenous approaches to to harm and to conflict. And I think having sort of that anthropological view of, of looking at each culture as its own independent thing and really getting into the nitty gritty of how they operate and how, you know, the different types of approaches to keeping communities together and addressing harm, I think was just so fascinating. And then being able to compare those to completely different societies. I just, kind of fell in love with it and and wanted to find ways to kind of pursue that um, in, in however, whichever form it took, wherever I may be. <laughs> I love that because in the conflict resolution space, so much of what we do is we try to be creative or mm-hmm. give people options. But if uh, the practitioner isn't aware of options, that's hard to offer that to somebody else. You know, you can offer them space, you can listen, but, you know, that's the wonderful thing about college or just learning that, mm-hmm. you know, you learn things you didn't know and it opens up your horizon. And also when we come across things that we don't think will work or that we don't like, that is very informative as well. Absolutely. And I, I think too, I, you know, I had multiple opportunities to travel and, and study abroad in, in different countries. And, um, you know, I kind of focus specifically on that point of, you know, conflict and conflict resolution. Uh, I studied social policy in different places and, you know, again, finding those different community resources that may or may not translate to other places. But again, like you were saying, having just a bunch of different options to be able to say, let's try this. And if it doesn't work, we'll try something else and we'll keep going until whatever it is clicks. I love that because I think first and foremost, conflict resolution is about personal empowerment Mm. and we become empowered because a lot lot of times conflict shuts us down, right? It's very difficult physically, psychologically, Mm. and um, we can be entrenched, but the more we can open ourselves back up to see, no, this is, this is not the end, or this is not the whole story. I can change the narrative. I can do something different. And opening back up to see, well, what is that different? And imagining, Mm -hmm. you know, trying those things on. Absolutely. So where did you go once you graduated from your undergraduate? What did you do next? Um, I think I took about a year off to kind of figure out where I was going. 
And I always knew that I would go on to, you know, a further degree. I was just trying to decide if that was going to look like a law degree or something else. Um, so I did some, I guess, kind of soul searching there. And I, after about a year, ended up going to uh, into a master's program at American University. It's the in the School of International Service. Uh, and I got my master's of ethics, peace, and global affairs with concentrations in human rights, social justice, conflict transformation, and peace building. Wonderful, <laughs> so, wonderful. <laughs> quite a mouthful, but it was, I mean, I had the ability to, I mean, I was, I was kind of surrounded by people who were also interested in this sort of huge picture of conflict resolution and the different ways to approach that and really focus on specific courses and specific topics that I felt really strongly about, which I didn't find a program like that anywhere else. And was just so great to be able to like dig in and had, you know, courses specifically on global ethics and what that looks like. And, you know, specifically on sort of the fundamentals of conflict resolution and then looking at how that plays into human rights across the world. And I just, I mean, I had such a great time with that and being able to see how the pol or well, the policy and also the theory translates into practice. Uh, I mean, I had professors who are practitioners and was able to intern in other organizations and, and work for nonprofits and sort of think tank situations that just all were in this realm of of wanting to resolve conflict. And it was it was a pretty amazing place. <laughs> were you working during that time or were you just focusing on being a student? For the most part, focusing on being a student, I let's see, I had a couple different internships working at sort of smaller organizations and doing some research for them. I, I was part of um, a weekly international uh, sort of newsletter uh, that went out with sort of four or five big events that were going on across the world. I was responsible for two different regions of the world and would kind of comb through their local newspapers online and, and news reports um, to be able to send that out every week of these are things that are going on in the world that you should know about. Uh, and that was fascinating to be able yeah. to really dig into those local sort of hubs. And then I did have a job at the end of my graduate time working with the, the State Department. And that's actually how I got into the ombuds field, um, was applying through a program specifically for graduate students in federal government and kind of was explaining to the person I was talking to about what I'm interested in and what I was studying and where I wanted to go with that. And they said, you should definitely talk to the ombuds office. And I, I spoke with the then ombuds person and she, you know, we, we chatted. She was, she was surprised that I knew what an ombuds person was and <laughs> kind of, you know, excited about that. And, and then once I got onboarded, I was just kind of hit the ground running, doing the work and, you know, getting trained specifically in what it means to be an ombuds person and then being able to really put those skills into play. Was your first job as an ombuds, was that for the State Department, for the government? So yeah. you were a governmental ombuds, and now you work for higher education. What What is the difference of those different ways of, okay, so in the last episode, <laughs> I did interview an ombuds, Daniela from Georgetown University, who's a student oh, yeah. ombuds, but people may not have listened to the episode, so will you <laughs> tell us what an ombuds is? Sure. So I, I can speak from the organizational ombuds side. 
depending on which country you're looking at, there are different types of, well, actually not even just country, within countries too, but different types of ombuds. Um, so as an organizational ombudsperson, you know, I provide confidential, neutral, informal, and independent conflict resources, um, which can include things like mediations or facilitated conversations. Sometimes it's really just listening to a person, hearing their concerns, hearing their thoughts. You know, they may have particular goals or outcomes that they're looking for. And I would, you know, walk through that with them, help them sort through that, see what options and resources are available to them based on what they're looking for. And sometimes that's a one-on-one conversation. Sometimes that's, you know, involving other people or other units, offices, bodies, that kinds of thing to kind of help empower them to make the decisions that are best for them. And I think it differs depending on, you know, where the ombuds person is in, in different fields. Sometimes that can include investigations for organizational ombuds. It does not. So I, I don't get involved in those types of formal processes, but I can certainly help folks figure out what it's going to look like for them to be in that space. And if they decide to go for it, then, you know, all the best to them. It's a great explanation. So what did you, what have you found is the difference between working for the government and mm. working for an educational institution? <laughs> it's so funny. I, I, you know, I thought there would be a huge shift. I thought there'd be a really big planning curve. And, you know, there was in that there's all new types of policies, rules, regulations, being at a public institution, you know, can look very different from a private institution. Um, I would say the biggest change when I had that shift was the language. Uh, And I don't even mean, you know, like English or anything like that. But I mean, acronyms are everywhere. And (laughs) I mean, in government, everything is like a three letter acronym. And it took me, you know, the majority of my time there to finally figure that out. And then as soon as I shifted into into being at UCLA, it's a whole new world of of three-letter acronyms. And some of them were the same, but meant very different things. Um, So just learning the system and kind of figuring out where where folks are, I think was the biggest change. But I do think that at the core, a lot of the issues are the same because we're still human beings, you know, regardless of whether we're in government or in higher ed. Absolutely. A lot of the kind of work I do is with workplace, uh, workplace conflict Mm -hmm. resolution. And I just had somebody message me, do you have any advice for conflicts with siblings? And I, because I post little videos on TikTok and um, I haven't responded yet, but (laughs) it's, you know, people are people. Conflict is conflict. Mm -hmm. The space does matter because work is not family. Family has this whole host, but we are just people no matter where we are around the world. And we have certain kinds of basic needs that mm. show themselves up, you know, as particular kinds of wants and right. helping people move through that space. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, again, it makes me think of, you know, like when I was babysitting, you know, having right. to, you know, if there's a set of twins and they both want the same toy, you have to figure that out. And it's, it's really at the core, not that different from, you know, people who are working together and kind of fighting over a shared space or yeah. wanting access to limited resources. So it, it really does come down to what is it that this person needs or feels that they need and how yeah. can we, you know, accommodate or collaborate in a way where everyone is a little bit happier than they were before. <laughs> right. 
That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Even with finite resources, we think mm-hmm. it's it's this binary. One person wins, the other person loses, vice versa. But it is amazing what can happen when we just look under why we have that position. Like, Why am mm-hmm. I saying this is the only thing that's going to satisfy me and try to help investigate with that person? What are the other sorts of things that will also meet that need instead of just talking about their want, what they particularly right. want? So Natalie, when you think about the different places you've worked and with the internships and every other sort of work experience you have had, what for you is the best experience that you've had, either with an organization, an individual, a program, and what was it that resonated with you? That's such a good question. I I mean, I feel like I have all these little moments that are popping up, like all throughout sort of working and and learning in this space. And I think one of the sort of light bulb moments, I think for me was actually one of the study abroad programs I I did as an undergrad. Um, It was a conflict resolution program that was split between being based in Geneva and in London. And so we spent the first half of the program learning about different sort of theories of of conflict resolution and different practices. And then in England went to an organization where they were using restorative justice as a way to address harm as sort of leftover from the troubles in Northern Ireland and Ireland and how that had affected people in, in England as well. And there was sort of a light bulb moment. We were sitting in a yurt in the sort of courtyard of a church that had been bombed by the IRA. And the families had, you know, through this program, like come together and forgiven each other. Mm. And it was about maybe six months after the the bombing at the Boston Marathon, mm. um, which I had been at the marathon for that. Um, mm. And just this, you know, we were having this conversation about how you can tackle these really complicated conflicts that were, were literally about life and death. And be able to move forward through that and like untangle that mess. And it was kind of a light bulb moment of this is what I want to do. Like, this is so incredible that something so horrific and, you know, just kind of earth shattering for a lot of people can lead to something positive. And just that conversation of how do we move forward from this? What can we learn from this? How do we apply this in real life was, I think for me, the sort of pivotal moment of, okay, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be Indiana Jones, <laughs> but I can, I can do this. I want to do this. And so I feel like from that experience, that's sort of how I connected all the dots later on mm-hmm. to being able to kind of throw myself into that world. And, and even when internships or, or jobs didn't seem like they made a lot of sense for that trajectory, all of them led to kind of where I am now of being able to focus on even just writing newsletters about conflict and, you know, learning to take a lot of information from a policy website and then figure out where the gaps were or, you know, what groups of people were being left out and needed to be addressed. Even if that wasn't about conflict, it still helped me learn how to deal with conflict. Yeah. I think that's really interesting, you know, thinking about these really big 
conflicts that seem insurmountable or when somebody has really harmed another family that's taken the life of their child or, or whatever it might be and thinking, well, there's no hope. How, how can we have restorative justice? How can we have any sort of moving forward? How do we avoid the Hatfields of McCoys forever, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. How, how do we move forward? And I hear sometimes, because I, I, I contract with employers and whatnot, and they say, oh, these people are squabbling about petty stuff. And right. I think, well, it's not petty to them, right? And it doesn't do us any good to think about this as petty, these small, these small parts. But I think mm-hmm. it can also give us hope when we think, well, people who do these really big move forward and either forgive or uh, whatever it is, partner with people who've seriously harmed them. Mm-hmm. If they can find a way, I think it can show people there is hope for you. Because even the small things, we think there's no hope. I'm trapped. Mm-hmm. This person's going to be this way. This is going to, these are my circumstances and I'm helpless. But, and the small matters, because we're all located, we're all particular and the particular individuality of our circumstances really matter to us. And I think looking at those large things and and getting perspective, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. This person took my lunch, not my child, right? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Getting perspective and saying, okay, this is something that can be solved. Mm -hmm. There is a path forward because if there's a path forward on those other big items and there's history to know there is paths forward, Mm -hmm. then that other person's not a lost cause and neither am I. Exactly. And it's, and it's not even to, not to minimize anyone's right. concern, right? Like, right. like you're saying, like it's a stolen lunch versus, you know, losing a child. It's not to minimize the person whose lunch was taken. They might right. really feel so aggrieved by that action, but exactly like you're saying, you know, there, there's always a path to move forward. And, and I wish I could remember who had said this to me, something about, you know, like a, um, a couple that was divorcing and they were arguing over like a toothbrush of who is going to get the toothbrush. It's like, it's not about the toothbrush. Right. Right. Like sometimes it may be about the toothbrush. It may be that there's a very special toothbrush, but it's, it's not about that. It's there's, there's something that has happened. There's been a breakdown mm-hmm. and as bigger as, as small as it may be, like it is something that can be worked through and it might be really uncomfortable. It might be really hard, but it, it can be worked through. Right. And that's why there there's the place for mediators, third parties, mm-hmm. neutrals to help. Because we all need help. All of us need help. We need doctors. We need mechanics. We need. So why, why would we think that we don't periodically also need help to move forward in these conflicts that really affect our us physically, mentally, suck the time out of our life, especially mm-hmm. at work, how detrimental that can be. Mm-hmm. So. So staying on this theme of good jobs, what about a good <laughs> boss? Has there been somebody that you have worked for in particular that has modeled what you think are some really great practices and what are those? That's some great bosses. Um, I, I think I've been really lucky that uh, I think the common thread, so I was just saying the things that, that they've done that were just so helpful is sort of championing my success and and mm. pushing me to go to trainings and you know take the time to go to workshops or professional development programs um you know I just I just completed another professional development program um through the UC system that I probably would not have put myself up for you know I would have seen it and, and thought that I'm not you know I'm not at that level or I don't fit that criteria 
Um, and I've had a few bosses that have, you know, really sat me down and said, what is it that you want to work on and what can we do about it? So if it was, you know, I had one say to me, go find two trainings. They can be anywhere. They could be virtual. They could be in person, you know, whatever it may be, go find something that excites you and that you want to do and we'll make it happen. And so I think kind of putting a little bit of pressure on me to, you know, find something good and <laughs> find something interesting, but also knowing that it was something that I actually wanted to be doing and not kind of a tick the box development or, you know, task skill oriented, mm -hmm. uh, but really giving me that opportunity to find something that, that I wanted. And that would be helpful, even if it was taking time away from, you know, my sort of quote unquote desk job um, to, to improve my skills. And I've had a, a few bosses who have done that, that have just been so incredibly helpful. I can just imagine people listening to this think, oh my goodness, if only. Because, you know, I, I think a lot of times people, you know, when they are asked to or told to get training, it is that check the box. Watch yeah. this today. It's like, watch the series of videos. Now, right. you know, about DEI or something right. like that, you know, um, yeah. but to be invested in. And mm -hmm. I mean, most of us are very envious of that to have someone come along and say, how do what do you want to do? How could I help you do that? Yeah. Gosh, that's that's really that's lovely. Yeah, I've been really, really lucky to have a few, a few great bosses who've done that. Conversely, have you had any difficult circumstances with either coworkers or bosses or organizations? Yes. I <laughs> um one of my first sort of, I guess again, adult jobs um after graduating from from college was very difficult. I, it was during that period where I was trying to decide what kind of, you know, master's degree or, or law degree, what, what I was going to do next. And you know, I'm not even, I can't even quite remember how I ended up in this job, but I was essentially, I think my title was like marketing manager, which I don't really have specific marketing <laughs> experience. And I had a, a boss who I think just kind of thought I would run the show and, you know, was, he was more than happy to just kind of tell me what needed to be done and then, you know, take a four hour lunch um, mm -hmm. wow. and come back. And if things were not done, then, you know, not, wouldn't be so, so pleasant about it. And I think a lot of that experience showed me what not to do mm -hmm. when you're in a position of, of, you know, authority or, or supervision or just leadership of, you know, not really taking accountability for yourself. And if you kind of create a plan and then deviate from it, you can't blame the folks underneath you for not, you know, following through the way that you've now decided you want it. And that organization ended up going through a couple different iterations in a very short amount of time of really drastically changing what they were doing and what their sort of field was. Um, so that was, that was hard. And I think I stayed in that role a lot longer than perhaps I, I should have, or than I think than a lot of people would. And part of that may be that I was trying to resolve the conflicts, um, that I was really trying to stick it out and make it better internally. And it was, it was a very, a very draining experience. But again, I learned a lot 
from it. And I have not had an experience like that since, which is great. <laughs> so how did you deal with this absentee boss who, mm. how, how did you deal with that? I think in the beginning, and and I don't know if part of this is that, you know, I was really young in the field, um, you know, just a very young professional. And I, you know, didn't want to be blamed for things. So I kind of put in like a hundred and, you know, 190% all the time, which was draining. But I think I, I just kind of would try to do whatever it was that day needed to be done. I was kind of put in a position of micromanaging other quasi employees who were essentially children. <laughs> um, so it, you know, I, I felt a responsibility toward them to make sure that they were being taken care of and, and, you know, not taken advantage of. And so I think part of it was, I felt responsible for them. And like, if I could make it a little less terrible for them that I would. And I, I just, I took on as much responsibility as I needed to when my boss wasn't there. I, I made sure that things were running as smoothly as possible. And I didn't get recognized for it at all, which was rough. <laughs> yeah, that is rough. So what was the deciding factor of you leaving that job? I think actually it was an opportunity for an unpaid position, uh, a, a fellowship at a, on a political campaign that, you know, again, it wasn't paid, but it was something that I was really passionate about. And it was like, you know what, even if I'm not getting a paycheck, I'm going to be doing something that I'm really interested in and could make so much more of a difference than what I was doing at this other place. And, you know, I got to the end of my time and I just said, thank you very much and best of luck. And I will be, you know, I'll be out of, out of state for a little while. And I, you know, hope everything goes well. And I don't think I ever communicated with them again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's what happens when we're at a place that takes advantage of us, that just uses us all up. And there's, I mean, as you were talking, as you already know, so many red flags as to any, a job with any sort of longevity that mm -hmm. was going to respect you as a person. Unlike your other bosses who right. have uh, invested in you. And of course, through that, you are a better worker and invest in your organization, right? Absolutely. When you get invested in. I was just talking to somebody just the other day about some issues, generational issues in mm. their organization. Mm -hmm. And when you think about conflict, and so you work at a university and you, I imagine, see people of all different ages. How do you advise people, let's say they're in their 20s, and they're having issues with somebody in their 40s or 50s or vice versa, whatever it might be. Mm. Do you have any advice that you offer or can you can you offer any advice for somebody who is dealing with generational gaps in the work environment, especially after COVID? I mean, it's just been rough on a lot of people. Yeah, yeah it has been. And, and you're right, the way that folks have kind of come out of that in different ways of, you know, either wanting to remain fully remote or being really adamant about being in person. You know, I, I definitely can see the value in, in each of those sort of generational opinions, right? Because they really are kind of coming out in those sort of categories of, 
you know, like the different age brackets and how we're responding. That's hard. I mean, I've definitely had, I've had experiences where sort of the generation that I belong to have led people to making certain assumptions or not wanting to work with me or explicitly wanting to work with me. So I, I certainly take that into account when I'm talking to people of, you know, if it's someone of sort of an older generation, like what might they be assuming when they talk to me or someone who, you know, like a, a, a freshman, you know, looking at me and, and kind of, they might think that I'm more on their side because they think I'm like closer to their age than the, the maybe the faculty member that they have a concern about. So I try to kind of approach it as, you know, where that person is, regardless of what that generation is, if they have certain assumptions, I might poke that a little bit and challenge that. And I think I tend to be sort of in the middle of the people that I'm working with. So it can be helpful to have a different opinion than both of them, or just from the person I'm speaking to and, and saying, okay, so this is what you are thinking, feeling, assuming, understanding. What if it's this other way? What if this other thing is coming into play? What if, you know, a student doesn't want to meet in person because they're intimidated by sort of your authority or, you know, your stature or or the other way around? What if this person wants to meet in person because they want to be able to have that human connection and not be behind a screen? Or what if the screen makes them brave and that's why they want to do that? So I, I think the advice that I would give would be just to listen to what the other person is thinking and, and feeling. And again, that can be really hard if there's a conflict to even be open to that. But that's where I think coming in as a third party, I can kind of relay that and, and kind of go back and forth and provide these alternatives and these other perspectives to say, yeah, that could be your truth, but theirs is a little different. And as an objective sort of observer who doesn't have a stake in the game that you're playing, here's what I might be seeing, or here's a thought that I have that you may want to consider. And I found, I mean, that phrase is so helpful. And, you know, one of right. my, my colleagues here uses it all the time. And I was like, yes, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. You may want to consider that this is going on or that they feel this way. And it's not an attack on you and it's not a judgment. It's just something you may want to consider. Right. That is a, that is a great phrase. And and it's wonderful because it still retains their choice. Like, well, they mm -hmm. might want to, they might not. Absolutely. Um, but then that's a kind of choice, right? Yeah. They're deciding not to, or they're, or they're deciding to go on that, that journey. As you were talking and saying that you're sort of in the middle, mm -hmm. I, I was thinking how helpful that is because a lot of times in conflict, we want to draw other people on our side. Right. Yeah. And we yeah. want, we want the affirmation of the crowd that we're right. The other person's wrong. And so being able to, to go to somebody who is on nobody's side, it, mm -hmm. it can be arresting for when you tell somebody, I'm not your advocate. I'm nobody's advocate, right? Yeah. I am here for the space. They're like, it's not something people are used to hearing. Right. But I, I also want to say, you know, when we talk about these different generations and there are all these different generations working in the same space. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes labels can be very helpful or words can be very helpful. Like I personally find the phrase and the, the, the thinking behind psychological safety yeah. as a wonderful way of thinking about, you know, trust and at work and pockets at work and all that goes into that, I think is a lovely shorthand. Mm. What I don't care so much for is generational language because it others us right away. 
right? Or... Your generation X, your generation Z, you're a boomer. And all of a sudden I've othered you and I've minimized you no matter where I'm at. And also other sorts of labels, which can be helpful, you know, but can also be really othering, bully, sexist, mm-hmm. racist, ableist. And we glom onto those labels and we forget about the actual particular person and actual particular behaviors. So how how do you address that when somebody's like entrenched in a othering label? Oh yeah, that is hard. And it's it's such a good point too of, you know, the was it the especially I think with Gen Z and sort of the <laughs> and as I as I use a label, right? Sorry. <laughs> But leaning towards not labeling everything, it is so interesting. And I think oh, I think a lot of folks are are more sort of tuned into that of not wanting to say, oh, well, this person is sexist, like you said, or or racist. It's the behavior that they're exhibiting. And I think that is really helpful to kind of reframe when someone is saying, you know, they're experiencing this horrible boss who is doing all of these things. So they must be, you know, racist, sexist, et cetera, et cetera. And being able to say, you know, how do we focus on what the actual behavior is? Because especially if you go to that person and say, you're a whatever, like that's not helpful. Right. It's never going to get the conversation, you know, where you want it to go. Cause then everyone's just going to be, you know, defensive and, and not in a position to have that dialogue. So I think a lot of it is, reframing sort of it's still you're still focused on that person but it's on the person's behavior because behavior you can change right if this you know if that person is inherently sexist or racist or whatever okay fine that's definitely not like that's that can happen of course but if you if you're able to identify the behavior and say this is the impact that this mm-hmm. behavior is having and label that as yeah. opposed to, oh, you're a boomer, you're a zoomer, whatever, you don't know anything. Then I think there's that room to be able to change or, you know, make that person be aware of what it is that they're doing and the impact that they're having that's leading to the name calling and the labeling. Yeah. I, I love that, you know, looking at behaviors and of course an impact that's really strong. And that's something that you can get your hands around. If somebody tells me I'm ableist or I'm sexist, but I don't know what the, exactly that is. One, yeah. I don't want to talk to that person because I really feel like I'm misunderstood. But I also think personally, if I think somebody else is sexist, what, what am I going to do about that? I think mm-hmm. that's, that is, um, not empowering as somebody who is experiencing the sexist behaviors, right? Or whatever the behavior is. But if I've already told myself in a way that person's ir- irredeemable, they're not going to be able to change because that is fundamentally who they are. Then we are not focusing on the right things. As you said, the things that can actually change and in a work environment, it is certainly not my job. I think in any environment, but certainly at work, we're not changing personalities. That's, that's a wrong way to think, you know, you're not going to be able to do it. And it's work. You're not supposed to be doing that, but we can look at standards of behavior. We can look Mm -hmm. at civility and we can look at, as you said, impact. This particular behavior is having this impact. Do you even know it? This Mm -hmm. impact is unacceptable here. So what can we do differently? And those are things you could move the needle on. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I feel like that's a lot of, you know, like as, as an organizational ombuds, that's, that's a big part of it is looking at the organization and when, you know, folks are coming to you with sort of recurring 
themes or recurring trends, being able to say, okay, so how do we sort of address this in a way where, you know, we're setting that standard. If there's a sort of agreement that there's going to be a respectful workplace, what does that look like? What does that include? What does it explicitly not include? Right. And then it's it's also less targeting to the person. And, and sometimes, I mean, I feel like everyone would be able to relate to this. Sometimes there's a problematic person who is not going to be the person to show up to conversations about what's, you know, right um, or what's expected or, or considered to be appropriate. But when you do set that standard and you do create that culture, then it, it does kind of point out what's going wrong or what's mm-hmm. going right. Mm-hmm. And then to, again, to focusing on that impact of, okay, so then how do we address that in a way where we're not putting the other person on the defense? Because yeah, exactly like you said in the example, you're not going to want to have that conversation with that person if you feel like you're being misrepresented or you feel right. like you're being targeted. And if you can focus on that behavior and that impact, it, it kind of takes a little bit of the pressure off of the person who might be you know, conducting themselves inappropriately. Yeah. I think also, you know, universities are a little bit different, um, but I think in general, when you set the standard for an organization mm-hmm. from the very beginning and you act quickly, swiftly, justly, then it shows everybody whether or not that person's a good fit for the organization, mm-hmm. right? And if that person is con- going to continue, we don't have to go for years and years. We can say, okay, well, we're going to part ways because this has been, this is the standard. We've gone through this process, a humane, human-centric process, giving you know people ample opportunity to, uh, to really understand and refine and but it can also show that other person, yeah, this isn't the place for me. I'm going to look elsewhere. And so you can really have a healthy workplace culture, but it takes everybody. And we have to know what that is, right? We've mm-hmm. got to know what the standard is, even though it can be a broad standard. Right. But but a broad standard of something like respect your, your colleagues has ways in which you should do that, but certainly has things that are unacceptable behaviors. Right. And once we start looking at, well, this is unacceptable for these reasons, how do we, how do we move forward? So how I usually like to end uh, this podcast (laughs) is by thinking about what you think we need to do to have healthy workplaces. So if you could point to one thing, what do you see as something that would help people not only be treated with dignity and respect at work, but flourish. What what, what would that be? Good question. <laughs> Have an ombuds office. <laughs> yes. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. I think yeah. having, having a mechanism or a place where people can feel safe to raise concerns, mm-hmm. if you know, or if someone isn't feeling supported and they can't go to the person who's not supporting them to say, "I need help" or "I need." I need this. I think having that that other place where someone can go is really important because if it is, you know, needing needing something specific, I need a better laptop because I work from home and I, you know, that having that it, it could be as simple as that or it could be, you know, I don't feel safe in my environment. I don't feel like I can truly be 100% of myself and that's going to affect the work having a person or people where they can go and not be judged and not trigger any kind of, you know, formal process, whether it's with HR or even, you know, Dean of Students, something like that, to be able to go and kind of unload whatever it is that they're carrying, sort through it, figure out what 
works, what doesn't, what the options are, and then be able to say, okay, yep, this is what I'm going to do and move forward. I think that would help people flourish because then they, they have that place again, where they can ask for what they're looking for and maybe figure out how to get it for themselves instead of just kind of throwing it into the abyss. <laughs> yes. I, I a hundred percent agree. I mean, if we don't want gossiping and backbiting and sabotaging and bullying like behavior, if we don't want toxic work environments, then we have to provide something else. We have to be intentional about it. And having those resolution hubs, ombuds offices, having a dedicated resources that everyone is encouraged to use if they need it. Mm. Why would you not do that? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, Natalie, thank you so much for talking with me today. I really enjoyed it. My pleasure. Thank you, Mary. Well, take care. Thanks. Thank you, Natalie, so much for your time and sharing your experiences with us. And I 100% agree that every organization needs an organizational ombuds. At the very least, some kind of resolution hub to deal with the inevitable conflict that comes up at work. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services. You can find them online at 3pconflictrestoration.com. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.